It's time for a WeChat workout. WeChat. Go, go, go to the Cliff Central account. Tap connect. Then message to show. On radio. On radio. More of the good stuff. CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. It's another Thursday afternoon here on Cliff Central, which means another edition of Between Two Femmes. I'm Mabale Moloye. And I'm Aspasia Karras. And I can tell by the number of people in the building that uh, winter has definitely come. You can see the, the thicker jerseys have come out of wardrobes. Scarves are making a comeback. Boots all over the place. Are you suggesting that they're in the building because they're t- not taking as many smoke breaks? <laughs> I don't actually, I don't know anybody who smokes cold. here at Cliff Central. Does nobody smoke here? I mean, no, not that I know of. Um, you know, on Game of Thrones, for example, winter is always coming, but it's, it hasn't it's never still, arrived. Uh, well, winter has arrived. It's here for us uh, today. So uh, let's all brace ourselves. Let's not waste any more time and head straight into the women's news. Now, Aspasia, who lies more, you or your husband? <laughs> I, I I wonder. Okay. <laughs> because a new study has revealed that four in five women lie almost daily. Every single day of our lives we're apparently lying as opposed to just two out of five men. What does that mean? Well, it means that... What kind <laughs> of lies are we telling? Are they big... Um, that substantial lies. A lot or? of, a lot of the reasons. In fact, more than half, uh, 55% of these lies are attributed to mostly trying to protect somebody, not trying to hurt their feelings. Um, yeah. So, and so then when your, and then with friend the, says, do I look fat in this? You say no. You say no, you look great, but you're <laughs> lying. Um, and then 32% of the time that we, or, or, of the, reasons that we lie for is just because you don't want to get into trouble. So maybe you get caught doing something. You're like, no, it wasn't me. I did not cheat. (laughs) (laughs) This is luckily reflecting on last week's um, conversation about the Ashley Madison (laughs) perspective on life. This is true that uh, more and more women Signing up for that kind of thing, you know, um, extramarital so affairs. Perhaps that's why more women are fibbing. So women are bigger liars than men, according Could it to this be that research. That society also kind of makes you. you what makes you a liar? Is that what you're going to say? I'm. What I'm saying is that it might be that people are much likelier to judge women harshly for certain things, and so they need to like be much more effective. In society, like sort of lubricate it. Like, I mean, that part of keeping people pleased, people pleasing is a terrible, like sort of burden of womanhood. And the reason they're people pleasers is because society judges women pretty harshly or immediately judges them more. And I, I read an article which brings us to our next element of the women's news, which mm-hmm. is about Caitlyn Jenner. Who has joined us. Right, yes. She has joined our gender. Welcome to the sisterhood, Caitlin. Welcome. But what they were saying is immediately, as soon as Caitlin adopted her female persona, so did society. And suddenly there were lots of judgy things happening. Like people were judging her hair. People were calling her hysterical. Suddenly all those normal epithets that women are used to experiencing, which perhaps when she was Bruce, mm. she wasn't, you know, throwback Thursday, 
When she was Bruce last week, she didn't have these issues. Actually, and maybe that's why women are like more prone to lying, to smoothing over the waters. This is this is exactly what John Stewart was saying on uh, the Daily Show. In fact, he was having a go at how the media have been reporting Caitlyn Jenner's story, and it's exactly what you've just said. Now, as for see, have a listen to what John Stewart says. Because it's really heartening to see that everyone is willing to not only accept Caitlyn Jenner as a woman, but to waste no time in treating her like a woman. All I can say is, wow, so sexy. It hurts. I got a couple emails from some friends yesterday saying, I'm a little jealous. She looks better than I do. She looks like a movie star. She looks like Rita Hayworth. So glamorous. She is stunning. She looks beautiful. Wow. She looks amazing. Look at that. That does, is a does hot she have it? Yes, Caitlin is hot. It's like, yes, sexy boobs. <laughs> I mean, I was like, my brain was like, this is a great milestone for the transgender community. But my penis was all like, Teddy. You see, Caitlin, Caitlin, when you were a man, we could talk about your athleticism, your business acumen, but now you're a woman and your looks are really the only thing we care about. How's that? Exactly. Exactly what you were saying (laughs) and exactly true. And everybody has been talking about how great she looks. Including me. (laughs) I said, actually, I thought she just looked like a fantastic version of Jessica Rabbit. (laughs) <laughs> I think so. She's like, but I think I think part of the reason that people are going on and on about her looks is because they were maybe a little bit nervous at how she was going to turn out, because you know people are silly that way. They're like, oh, well, I mean, he was a man and now she is a woman. I wonder what that's going to look like. And people were surprised that actually it doesn't look as shocking or as as horrific as they imagined. Imagined. Finally, uh, on the women's news today. Apparently, according to some research that First for Women Insurance has done, women who work part-time waste the least amount of time at the workplace. So they're only wasting about 11% compared to the average, which is 14.5% of the working day is wasted on those smoke breaks that apparently nobody at Cliff Central is taking. Yeah. Um, and and they're arguing that it's because working mums especially need to squeeze in more work in less time through better time and priority management. Um, and so actually, their productivity challenges the idea that working mums are far from ideal workers. So, so they're the most efficient, basically. They they're are. more efficient than everybody else. Because they have to pack it all in, pack it all in. Multitasking and all of that, it comes in handy. Um, okay, well, let's wrap it up here for the women's news. We chatted to Rebecca Davis uh, shortly after that. She's just launched her book called Best White and Other Anxious Delusions. <laughs> I love that title. I can't wait, to, can't wait to get into it. I have to question you whether I have any of those anxious delusions with you. Have I beha- been behaving like a best white? <laughs> you know, have I? And let's get, let's get straight uh, into what exactly a best white it is. I mean, we know about clever blacks <laughs> and now apparently they are best whites. This is such She's a great. Tell us. Well, that's exactly it. This is such a great country that we're living in. So we'll, we'll wrap it up there for the women's news. All right, uh, Rebecca, I don't know if uh, if we've got you on the line already. Can you hear me? I can indeed. Hello. Oh, fantastic. And thank you for chatting to us this afternoon. Mm, thank you for having me. So your book tour, madam, um, has been keeping you busy <laughs> over the last several days. Uh, firstly, congratulations on your book. 
Um, the reviews that I've been reading online um, from other writers have been exceptional uh, so far. Well, listen, she has the accolade of being one of South Africa's funniest Yes, this women. is true. This is true. <laughs> is so, that how you see yourself? I hate that one of South Africa's funniest women because the obvious implication is that I'm only funny when compared to other women. But if you ever were to put me in a competition with funny men, uh-huh. obviously yeah. I'd be bottom of the pile there. Okay. All right. So, Rebecca, best white and other anxious delusions. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is a best what white? What is a best white? Let's start because there. Because I'm worried that I'm a ballet's best white. <laughs> <laughs> At least best I'm hoping white. I'm her best white. I'm hoping she doesn't have any other better white than me in her life. Um, a best white, it's, it's a satirical concept, which is one thing I'm very anxious to make clear mm. because otherwise I think you run the risk of having this taken as some like serious racial category or some statement of white supremacy or something. And it absolutely <laughs> isn't. A best white is the type of person that I describe in the book, which I feel is quite a common South African type. And maybe you guys can tell me whether you felt like you recognize that type. But, um, that is the white person who secretly thinks that they are less racist than all the other white people in South Africa. Right. That all the others are quite prejudiced and racist, but that they are actually the best whites. And the way they manifest this to the public is through a range of behaviors, such as, for instance, meeting black people and immediately starting conversations about white privilege and about how racist other white people are. Um, they talk about how they went to schools which were always interracial, even though if you, you, you just know that's absolutely impossible. Their parents always have magnificent histories in the struggle. <laughs> uh, they call they call black waiters brother the whole time. I mean, they're just like performing this elaborate non-racism all the time. And don't get me wrong, as I said, no, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, let's be honest. What about the people who his parents did actually do amazing yeah. things in the struggle. But, but that's why I make a dis- uh, distinction uh. between actual best whites, mm. which is lowercase, and best whites who are, who are, who are in this like pageant of performance. If you are an actual best white, you don't need to do any of that stuff. You don't run around telling everyone about your parents' struggle history or how non-racist you are because you're just getting on with living your life. Um, it's it's to do with this, you know, this absolute chip on the shoulder about white guilt and so forth. And I mean, mm. I think a lot of us feel, and as I say in the book openly, like I'm def, I definitely am a bit of a best white. And I do think it's better to be a best white probably than to be an aggressive racist. So how can so we I be better think- whites, I wonder? <laughs> <laughs> Good, better, best. <laughs> I think also that it's it's quite an irritating um, performance as well. And I'm sure that many, many black people find it quite annoying at the same time. You know, just, just this morning on the Gareth Cliff show, we were talking about Tom Hanks' son, I don't know, Chet yeah. or someone. And I mean, this mm. kid, you know, he's he's a white kid. He He's a rapper. Apparently he raps. Um, when he speaks and you're not looking him in the face, you would swear that it's an African-American man speaking to you. This, I mean, it's just so frustrating <laughs> and annoying. It's like he it's like he looks at these African-Americans and, and sees them as these characters that he can take on as, take on as a role and play. And he pretends to be, you know, he pretends to be black. But um, here's here's an interesting thing that happened to me. Uh, well, I mean, I almost did it to myself, Mabzi and Rebecca. Uh, we were hosting a 70s disco party, and I went to the wig shop, as one does, because obviously I love a dress-up. And I thought, what am I going to wear? And I put on all these, like, 70s wigs, and I immediately looked like a man in drag. I was not Caitlyn Jenner mm. by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and so... 
The only wig that worked that looked really fantastic was my afro. The afro. And then I thought, am I, am I going to be treading in all this terrible territory now if I take this afro and wear it to the party, which I then did. And I asked, I asked my black friend, <laughs> not my buddy, but I sent her a picture and I said, is this okay? And she knew what I was saying. And she said, no, it's fine. But now here's the thing is mm. that I went off to the, after the party we went because we had to shut it down at a certain time. Um, you know, we didn't want to be a police sort of target. And so we went to Kitchener's where a young man, I, I was worried about my virginity at Kitchener's. That's all I'm saying because that Afro. A young man tapped me on the shoulder, right. thinking I was a black girl. Yeah. And when I turned around, he, he was got like, the <gasps> shock of his life. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, Oh no, I, I can't cope with black girls in weaves, but this now is a whole different thing. And then he proceeded <laughs> to follow me the whole night. And I was like, maybe I am being the best black. Um, Rebecca, in the room. Rebecca, t- tell me more about this white girl thing because that yeah. is obviously something that I just don't understand. But, um, I, I mean, is this, is this kind of spread around? Is it a general thing that, that, that white people, that they're dealing with this whole white guilt thing and they feel like they need to be apologetic all the time. I mean, sometimes we just get the sense that, you know, you, 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 you kind of just want us to get over it and just move on already. Mm. Like just let it go and let's just move mm. on. So talk to me about this white guilt. Look, it's not actually something I discuss a lot in the book. And I must actually clarify as well that this book is not about race. It's not a, this treatise on race relations or anything. The best white is just the, the, the title one of the, one essays. Of the essays. Yes. But, um, Molly, what I say in the book, and I'm, you're absolutely right that, you know, there's the significant portion of the white um, population in South Africa, I think, are of that whole get over it, apartheid's over that, that mentality. But I think there's also a lot of young white South Africans who are conscious of the fact that they weren't even alive for apartheid, are nonetheless conscious that they have benefited from it, but literally have no idea what to do with that notion. Just do not know particularly where to channel that, who do live with a lot of guilt. And as I was saying, I think that one of the ways that this gets um, sort of transmogrified is into this sort of best white persona where you you walk around trying trying to show trying to exhibit your difference from other white South Africans so so acutely. And you know that isn't something that black South Africans have to take on. That's something for white South Africans to deal with. But um it's I I mean I think it's real. I think it, it affects a lot of a lot of white South Africans. Well because I think it used to be easier if you I mean I've always regretted that like by the time I got to varsity you couldn't really join the struggle. It was like kind of things had moved on. And so I was like, now what? Where am I going to put all that like sort of, um, and I wouldn't call it white guilt, but I had like sort of strong feelings about what needed to happen in this country. But Mm. I had no struggle to join. You know, Mm. people had moved on and they were now planning their like sort of political ascendancies and other things. Right. And so there was like a bit of a, it's almost like a sort of vacuum. In, mm. in, in social mm. engagement that happened for a while and it all went into maybe this weirdness that you're describing. But I want to ask you, because I've always wondered why you called Beck's Plan B on uh, <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> what is and this I'm Plan B? Are you in the Plan B? 
<laughs> I I didn't even know it was the name of a book. Uh, what is it? It's the morning after pill, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone goes on about Plan B. Um, it's a quote from an. It's part of a quote from an American comedian called Maria Bamford, who's absolutely wonderful, and you should really look her up. She does this very kind of neurotic stand-up. She's brilliant. Um, in which she says that a friend of her mother's asked her, "So you're a comedian." What's plan B? And she replied, <laughs> this is plan B after the whole supermodel astronaut thing didn't work. <laughs> so it was just a... a Maria a Bamford. That, mm, that's her name. Look her up. She's great. Rebecca, we've actually got Mandy Wiener joining us on the show as well today. Um, just We're going to be chatting to her after we chat to you. And she was just telling me that she's actually read your book. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna bring Mandy into the conversation at this point in time because she, I mean, she was also just raving about it, right, Mandy? It's proper like highfalutin literature. Hey, Rebecca. Charles Dickens of our time, Mandy. The most profound thing I think is about why you should high five people and not give them those awkward hugs. That's that's my take out from okay. from Rebecca's book. Okay. And the fact that I, like I said to her on Twitter last night, she's had like so many jobs. And every essay is about a different job that she's had. She's had the most bizarre career. A checkered career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. like you picked strawberries off a line like a, and packaged them in cartons <laughs> in the I UK. I also left some of the jobs out, I should tell you, including my brief stint as a Christmas elf in a shopping center, which is one of the most traumatic of them all. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, that because the father Christmas was a real sort of dodgy character? <laughs> no, there was no Father Christmas. I was Pip the Christmas Elf, and my co-performer was Minty the Polar Bear. <laughs> Minty the Polar Bear had to wear a full bear suit and full mask, out of which she could see absolutely nothing. She was legally blind. So I had to lead <laughs> Min- Min- Mindy through the, through the street. How did you not really write worrying. about this? I, I know. <laughs> there was she has to write another book. You do. You have to save some stories for the next time. <laughs> but I mean, Rebecca, with, with the process that you've just gone through putting this book together and the, the reception that it's getting, I mean, will we be reading more of your stuff at a later stage? Because I think you're on a roll here. Well, we can read her every week, eh? Well, yeah, for sure. You can read me literally all all over the show every day because I have to write quite a lot. But in terms of books, I mean, I'm still in recovery, to be honest. And I think it's going to take... Mandy Wiener can speak of that. We we share a publisher and I know what she's just been through. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. The scars need to heal first. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for chatting to us this afternoon. uh, And congratulations once again with the book. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. uh, So, Mandy, you're going to stay on because we'd love to chat to you uh, today as well. We're going to be talking about a column that you just wrote for Marie Claire magazine, actually. Um, She's writing a, 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 it's not even a column, it's an investigation. (laughs) An investigation. (laughs) Monthly feature investigation. Oh, Oh, very interesting. You have a column. We could discuss your column as well, but let's talk about (laughs) the investigation. Well, yes, because um, this is an interesting topic and everybody Everybody always has an opinion about it, and it's whether or not we should forgive Eugene de Kock. So we're going to get into that uh, right after this. Cliffcentral.com. Ah, an oldie but a goodie. Uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony with Crossroads on Cliffcentral.com. Between two fems, Mandy Wiener joins us now. Hang on, do I have your microphone on? No, I don't. Do I? Hello. Yes, yes, I do. Oh. Uh, Mandy, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Um, Mandy, of course, you're a journalist, so you've done extensive work on the Eugene de Kock story and, of course, millions of other stories. And um, I understand that you got to spend some time 
interviewing uh, family members of, you know, the the victims who were who were affected by Eugene de Kock's, um um, these units at, at Flak Plus. Yes, exactly. So, so for Murray Claire, and I, I, I'm doing this monthly investigative uh, piece for for Murray Claire every every month. And this this month in particular, the issue that's on the shelves, we decided to take a look at whether it is possible to forgive Eugene de Kock, who of course was the commander of the apartheid era Flak Plus mm-hmm. um, unit, uh, in light of the fact that that de Kock was released on parole yes. uh, earlier this year. So I spoke to some academics about it, and I felt that the most relevant way really to understand this issue of forgiveness around Eugene de Kock was to speak to the family members of his victims. Um, so I spoke to Candace Mama, whose father Glenock uh, was one of the Nelspreit Five that was killed by the Flakplas unit. And then I spoke to Tando Makapela, whose brother was also one of the Nelspreit Five. And, and she's mm. much older than Candace. And the two views were completely juxtaposed. They were were direct opposite, where Candace was young and vivacious and, um, you know, very forward thinking. Mm. She was willing to forgive, whereas Tandor had the exact opposite view, um, because she, she was actually on the scene of, of where the, the Nosbred Five were killed. She saw the burnt out bodies, uh, and she just refused. And both of them had actually been to the Hosi Mampuru prison to meet with Eugene de Kock before them. he was released. Because I think that's what's like kind of interesting in all the story is do you think that his feelings have been genuine? Well, his it, it desire depends who to you be speak forgiven. To. So it, it depends on who you speak to. So Candace Mama in her family's meeting with Eugene oh. de Kock last year, her question to him was, do you forgive yourself? And he had great difficulty answering that mm. question. Um, she has a sense that he feels genuine remorse and that there, there is authenticity there and that he feels as though he has been uh, rehabilitated to an extent. And the fact that he's now working with the National Prosecuting Authority's Missing Persons Task Team to try and find the remains mm. of, of many of the people who were killed in apartheid, she feels as though that remorse is Genuine and authentic and he should be released on, on parole. Whereas Tando Makapela doesn't. Mm. She doesn't believe that. Um, and she feels that he hasn't given all the answers. And I spoke to Marjorie Jobson, um, who, uh, is part of an organization who facilitated, um, all of, all of these, these meetings, uh, and somebody who's worked very closely, uh, with, with, um, with mm. people like Eugene de Kock and, and rehabilitation. And she says that, that she believes that he was just ticking the checkbox for the department's release, that he was going through the motions of meeting the family members, saying he was remorseful, even though he, he couldn't have been. Be. Let me play uh, some of these interviews that you had with the people that you mentioned, Tando and Candace, just to give you an idea of um, the discussions that took place there. How did you feel after the meeting with him? I felt a bit of relief, although I wasn't satisfied with all the answers that he gave me, you know. And sitting there across the, across the room from your brother's killer, how did that feel? Terrible. Terrible. I felt real terrible. But I thought, you know, I need to do this for, for me to at least half a percent for me to heal. You know, although I did not get all the answers that I needed to hear, but at least I sat with him, you know, and I spoke to him. Did you feel like you got closure? Well, a bit of closure, a bit of closure. 
you know, a bit of closure as as he explained all of the things and he did not kill him and he had instructed that he shouldn't be killed but he still blames himself. He did not take responsibility because he was the commander. Did you get the sense that there was remorse, that he, he feels remorseful? No, I didn't. Not at all. Not at all? Not at all. Not at all. He was the decock that I've seen in the TRC. Mm. He was the decock that I've seen in court. I just found that he's not a remorseful person. And did you find that the years in, in prison had changed him? I, I'm not sure that. All I've, the change that I've seen in him, he's gotten a bit sick and a bit... He's got a hearing problem and his hip is funny now. That's all I can see. Did you support his release from parole? No, I didn't. You didn't? No, I didn't. So why was he released? Well, most of the families said they, they forgave him. There's nothing that they can do, but I, I did not, quite honestly. Do you forgive Eugene de Cock Forty to your no. mother? No. Why not? Hmm. Because I haven't gotten the answers. Well, you know, um, this thing of remorse is, is, it's very important, isn't it? Because if you, if you get the sense that the person who did you wrong does not take responsibility for their actions and how their actions have affected and changed your life, then it's almost nearly impossible to even consider forgiving them. Well, absolutely, but it's difficult to quantify. Mm. So, so how do you measure remorse? Yeah. And how, how can you tell whether it's authentic or not? Um, and that's why I felt it was important to speak to the, the relatives because with their face-to-face meetings, they, they have a pretty good, um, Understanding of, of whether or not that is, that is genuine remorse or not. Um, you know, but, but if you speak to people close to Eugene de Kock, they'll say that he feels that he can only achieve true forgiveness by asking the people he killed for forgiveness, which he can't do. No. So, I mean, he can't go to the people that he killed. He can't go to, uh, to Candace Mama's father, Glenock, and say, please forgive me. Um, and he feels that the only way that he can show remorse is through his actions. And that's why he wants to help the missing persons task team um, to try and find the, the remains of, of those people that were killed. In a way, I mean, I think this story reflects back on the process that we, you know, all embraced in this country. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission definitely still left some opaque places and some places where people did not feel that there was resolution. Mm. And in fact, there's still all these like sort of open wounds out there. I don't know that everyone has received, um, you know, some kind of closure. Yeah. And I think that we're seeing a manifestation of that now in so many ways where there are so many overt um, references to racism. And have a look at, at Rebecca's, yes. you know, reference to, to best whites, best whites. Um, and all of that white guilt. And, and there was a sense, I think, that um, from, from some sections of society that the TRC was beautiful and wonderful and you know there was like a ventilation of everything and we were able to to come clean but then there's definitely a, a sect of society that believes that it was the worst thing possible because it it didn't allow that that rage and the anger and the resentment to to come out fully um and there wasn't you know sufficient kind of revenge um <laughs> you know and I think that's the the view that some people who don't forgive that's the, the view that they take. Well, we know that race is something that South Africans in general are preoccupied with. So let's talk on a collective level as, as a country and forgiveness and then, and then moving forward. You know, there are times where you, you realize that it's clearly evident that we are far from getting over 
the, 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 the impacts of our past. Um, you can see it in, you know, the conversations that we have, uh, you know, when, when, when black people are having conversations among themselves, it might not be the same conversation that they're having with white people and vice versa. I mean, there's still a lot of anger and tension underneath all of it. Uh, the perfect example to look at is the Rhodes Memorial, mm. you know, that, that that was just a, a kind of placebo for a much bigger issue, is that it wasn't just about a statue, it was about, um, you know, latent issues and, and, and feelings of, of the, you know, black community being ostracized at, at UCT. And that suddenly you know, bubbled over. Exactly. In a way, like yeah. this, like sort of this idea that we kind of plastered our wound. Yeah, uh, we the, didn't, we didn't treat the wound. We just kind of put a band-aid over it and we hoped for the best. Exactly right. And a, a lot of people feel like that's what the TRC was, that it was just a, a band-aid and, and now it's and all kind of going a bit there, septic. There are places where Terrible things happened. I'm thinking specifically of Argentina, mm. where, you know, people thrown out of airplanes, blah, blah, blah. They were still missing people. There's still those ladies hanging out in the square, you know, the mothers of all the yeah. missing people. And yet they've never had a, they've never had even that opportunity to kind of almost Look at the wound. Yeah, and if slightly. you look at like Chile, for example, where they did have a similar kind of yes. process to the TRC and, and, and they also have the, the same experiences. So, you know, I think it can be argued either way. Um, you know, about uh, this thing is so complex that there's no correct answer really. And there's always going to be some kind of latent issue. Um, but I think that the, the takeout for me from speaking to people like Candace Mama and, mm. um, you know, speaking to, to Tando Macapella was that it's all about yourself. And each of them said that they'd dealt with it in their own specific ways to reach their own kind of closure. So Candace, you know, said that for her, forgiveness is about how she forgives mm. and uh, you can't let the the oppressor or the the person responsible dictate whether you forgive or not it's about you letting go that emotion and you liberating yourself well desmond tutu said forgiveness says you are given another chance to make a new beginning in a way if you can't for well if you can't move on essentially yeah. because that's what it is you're still nursing that wound and it's open um, does it matter whether he truly believes mm. that he is sincere in his seeking this apology and apologizing to these families? Or is it enough that he just does the act? Because what we're essentially saying, it's about people's needing for their own new beginnings. What Marjorie Jobson from Kulamani says is that it's a process. You don't just mm. go in there and have a cup of coffee with the, the killer of your, your family member and ask for forgiveness and say, sure. It's about a constant process. Mm. It's about, you know, therapy and going through the, the rehabilitation and, and, um, you know, finding ways to understand properly and tangibly what each side has gone through. There's no quick fix. There's no, you know, Panacea, um, you know, it, it really is a, a process. And in fact, you know, what Candace Mama said to me was that she hates the phrase "forgive and forget." You can't forget. You don't forget. Yeah. You forgive, and you let go, mm. but you can never forget. You can't erase. Uh, and that's what what Tando Macapella said. She can't forget. You know, feeling the flaking flesh of the bodies of the Nelspruit Five in in a blown up taxi. You know, she can't forget that. But Mandy, do you think then? That means it's a case of we're going to have to wait for all these evil people from the past to just kind of like 
They must just go. Die off they and must die off, and then the and wilderness. then and then maybe the then maybe we can begin the process as a country. I mean, we're still dealing with the Clive Darby Lewis parole issue, mm-hmm. you know, to this day. Do you think that once these people are gone and cease to exist, that 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 will somehow help as a nation for us to now start? You know, taking the next step in in this. I do think it's it's generational, and I asked the question in the article, um, actually saying, "Is Candace Mama quicker to forgive because she was only like a couple of months old when her father died, so she didn't know him, she didn't have that emotional kind of like investment, um, she didn't actually see his body or you know or, or, or like the the remains of of his colleagues, um, so it's easier for her because it's more it's not a, a literal thing, it's a figurative thing for her." So she can forgive. Whereas for Tando Macapella, she was in her early twenties. Mm. You know. Yeah, yeah. We do have we do have bits of that interview that she did with Candace. And I said, you know, it's great. All of us are saying we forgive you, and you know, I do forgive you. But I just want to know one thing. You know, it's great to receive forgiveness, but do you forgive yourself? And I think that was the most instrumental point. No, no, no. Actually, no. I lied. Before that even happened. Rewinding just a bit, he um, I was about to speak, and then he said, and the pastor said, "Okay, Candice, you can say something." And then Eugene looked at me and he said, "No, no, please, can I just say tell you something before you get started?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure," you know. And he started telling me about his family, and I think that's where the emotions now went about Taiwan because he started explaining, you know, because my. I tried to go in as clean and as free as possible so that my judgment would be as unhind- like unhindered as possible. But, I mean, we all still have that inkling of something that we hold against someone. So I automatically naked just thought that he's racist. Like, it wasn't even something I argued with myself. It was just like one of those things like, oh, I breathe air, he's racist. You know, it was one of those things to me. But when he told me the story about, you know, that it was a black family that helped his family escape out of the country and... He hasn't had contact with his sons. And, you know, he basically went on to telling us all the sacrifices that... I want to say sacrifices because that makes it seem like he was manipulating, but it was more just a story of where he came from. And after that, before I even got emotional, I asked him the forgiveness thing. And that's... I just asked him, like, it's great that we can sit and say we forgive you, but do you forgive yourself? And he said to me, look, that's the one question I prayed out of all these victim perpetrator, you know, encounters I've had that no family asked me that. And he's like, and here you come today and ask me that, <laughs> you know. And then, like, he looked down and he, like, dabbed the side of his eye. And, like, I felt a bit, like, okay, you know, I felt a bit guilty that, okay, crap, you know. But I really wanted to know the answer regardless. And and then he said first he went on telling us a different story about I don't even recall what he said like he just went in circles for a while and then he kept quiet and then I said okay that's great but you didn't answer my question you know and and then he said I'm sorry you know he said it's a really difficult one for me to answer he said, and he said when you've done the things I've done how do you forgive yourself and that one line stuck with me throughout everything we discussed every point of conversation we had that was the one line that just, I was like, whoa, okay. So that's Candace Mama, you know, speaking about her meeting with, with Eugene de Kock. Mm. And for her, you know, she feels that when she spoke to Eugene de Kock, she 
could understand that as a 17-year-old going into police academy, being indoctrinated, that's her viewpoint. You know, she she feels that kind of of empathy, whereas others wouldn't feel that way at all. They wouldn't even allow for room to 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 look at this at this man uh, as a man. You know, he was called prime evil after all. I mean, he was, you know, he he, he was evil. In a way, didn't he become like a sort of touchstone for mm. all the evil? It was easier for people to just say, well, look, there was this like crazy, bad, psychopathic killer with the bad glasses. Yeah. And so, so he was a, can- he was a personification of apartheid. And in fact, I asked both of them, I said, you know, do you think society is ready to forgive Eugene de Kock. Right. And Candace, who's forgiven him, says absolutely not. Mm. She doesn't believe that South Africa is ready to forgive because he is the embodiment of, of apartheid. He's the personification. When people think about apartheid, they think about Eugene they de Kock. see that face. And that's why it's so hard for people to forgive because they feel as though they're forgiving an entire system, not one man. And yet that man has become the system. It's easier for people to like, and then they can absolve themselves of their own personal, like, sort mm. of roles in the thing or whatever, you know, whatever things led up to that system, creating him essentially and giving him an ability to run wild and do whatever he was doing. That was a communal thing. It wasn't him one man alone. And well, I think that, that's, that's the, the argument is that he was acting on instruction. Um, and that he was following orders and that he was, he was kind of brainwashed to, to do this. But, but again, Marjorie Jobson from Kulamani mm. says that he was a trained killer and mm. he takes great pride in his work. Uh, and that he's very proud of the fact that he, he was so efficient. Um, and, and that he was so good at what he did. And well, that's why she doesn't believe that true redemption is, is possible there. They're all those guys who were scaries and, like, and the other side, the, like, sort of the, the parabats and all those crazy people who are still working all over Africa as mercenaries. Now those guys have, nobody's dealt with their responsibility, their feelings of whatever it might have. I mean, because they take pride and they paid huge money to mm. be these people, not only over Africa and Iraq. I mean, they, they have a life. But that's why I think it would be, um, would be under, you know, a false kind of illusion to believe that the wounds of apartheid are healed and mm. that, you know, 20 years into democracy, we are, a wonderfully shiny, beautiful rainbow nation. Right. It's just not reality on, no, on the ground. Not. What interests me is I wonder what it's like for Eugene Tocock's family. Because, you know, at the end of the day, he is your husband or your brother or your father, but you just have to listen to all these horrific things being said about him. But, you know, you still know him as your father, brother or whatever. I, I imagine it must be quite difficult being Eugene de Kock's family. Yeah, and, and you know, there's also an issue around his, um, th- there's quite a, a rift between him and his sons as well, um, that Candace Mama referred to. And as far as I know, they haven't really spoken, um, about mm. it. Um, but you speak to any kind of young, um, uh, what do you call them? Um, kids that were born after Mandela. Oh, the born free. Yeah, born freeze. Any kind of born free who's, who's, parent was um in the police or was you know some kind of kind of nefarious character and uh, it's the best white scenario you know it doesn't really want to be an acknowledgement mm. of of the fact that your parents were on the wrong side yes. of of apartheid um and i think there's a, a level of shame and, and embarrassment um, it to reminds a great me degree. of yeah the the children of 
Nazis mm. who also in, in Germany they changed their names. Overcompensate. Overcompensated. Um I had a very interesting experience though thinking about this idea of forgiveness and if it is possible because I went to um Anne Frank's house in mm. Amsterdam. And the thing that's like most disturbing about it as a memorial, which I think is what you need, you kind of need things to establish things so that people can remember in order so that they can begive, begin to forgive. And th- I mean, firstly, the crowds of people who, who agglomerate outside this house in order to get in to see it is insane. Like you have to queue for two hours. Um, even if you've booked online. So, I mean, there's something that's so powerful about this message. And when you go in, there's nothing. It is an empty warehouse, essentially, emptied of, and, and that's how her father wanted to leave it. So after they got um, arrested by the Nazis and taken off, the house was left empty. And I think that emptiness, that empty shell for me, was exactly the most powerful thing that anyone could have said. That... These people have been left empty. Their family member mm. was dead. He's gone. Um, and, and that is why it's so hard for forgiveness to happen. There's an empty space. And, and, and that empty space was so powerful. So, so what's really interesting is for someone like Tando Makapela, she's never been able to find the remains of her, her brother, which culturally is significant. Mm. And, um, I've interviewed quite a few in, in, in the, you know, the course of, of other work that I've done. I've interviewed quite a few relatives of, of people whose remains were never found. Um, for example, Sizwe Kondile, whose body was burnt on a pyre of, of, of tire and wood next to the Kamati River. Um, and, and his body was then bribed effectively, you know, while the Flakplast members had a bribe of their yeah. own alongside. Um, you know, that family has never found the remains. And it's, that's critical in terms of finding closure and healing from a cultural significance where they feel that they can't forgive because they need the remains in order to have closure from a spiritual point of view. So what the missing persons task team does is in instances where there's no hope of finding bodies, where mm-hmm. they, they can't find any remains, they have kind of spiritual repatriation where they'll go back to the last known place where the person was killed and they'll hold a ceremony there for, um, for the ancestors and, and, you know, for, for your kind of spiritual beliefs. And that's how they try and achieve closure. And I suppose that's why it's so important that these people actually who perpetrated the stuff Buy in and do it. Absolutely, because the only way they can find bodies is with the cooperation of apartheid-era policemen and Ascaris. Um, you know, and, and if you speak to Madeleine Fullard, who heads up the Missing Persons Task Team and her, her unit, they do the most incredible work where, where they plot on aerial maps and try and find exact locations, um, I know like Dirk Kutsia, for example, was taken out to some places where they have a look at where the railway tracks may have run and where there may have been a border crossing and then they excavate. Mm. It takes them years in the hope that they, that they will find bodies and they've been successful in some instances. It's like the archaeology mm. of fascinating. forgiveness. Yeah. But don't you think part of the problem is that, you know, here in this country, we, we don't really have discussions about race relations 
we we only have them in an, in a heated moment. For example, roads must fall. In that moment when it's heated and mm. people are angry and mm. emotional, and then we're not really having a conversation, we're just kind of shouting, shouting at, at each other, shouting at each other from across, you know, across the middle line. Where, well, me and my people on this side, you and your people are on that side. I mean, that's part of the problem is that we're not having uh, sensible conversations about this this thing, which is clearly still a big issue. It's for like the, the ugly sibling that no one wants yes, to talk about. Yeah. You know, like we, we only have to talk about it when we have to, when we put in the corner and then we all scream and shout and have a tantrum. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem is that we need to sit down like grown-ups and like address the issues on a regular basis and that needs to be facilitated and it needs to be a constant process. Um, and I think that sometimes people just like get caught up in life. You know, they kind of want to, they don't want to deal with the elephant in the room. They want to deal with what's going on in the room a lot of the time. Yeah. Only when they're forced to will they actually have their conversation. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have. No one wants to talk about it. It is. It certainly is. I mean, listen, I I saw the impact of my wig. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) My afro. Maybe it was just a bad wig. No, it was a fantastic wig. You can see the pictures on Instagram. My point is that that wig, he literally, and then he followed me around the whole night going, (laughs) you know what? what? I was like, oh my God, my virginity is at stake here. Because the wig was intense. But the reason the wig was so intense is because it was, it was raising this interesting question. Mm. And again, in quite a lightweight way, I mean, but it was interesting for me because I thought here I am treading on some very sensitive territory. And I mean, and it's interesting because I mean, why black girls wearing white hair? Well, now, causes huge problems. Oh, you well, this have, hair thing is like a whole other thing. I have no idea and now, how sensitive and now, that issue is. Here I was, a white girl wearing <laughs> black hair. I didn't know what people would say. But they seem to like it, those boys. You were bold, you were brave, but I do think that young man was just charmed by you and really just <laughs> was kind of hoping for a chance. Uh, Mandy, so quickly, between the two of you, as you said, you are going to be writing for Marie Claire. I mean, just give us a brief snippet of the kind of stuff that we can look forward mm, to coming from Next through. month. Next month. Next month. Um, a really, really interesting feature on the women who bring down serial rapists. So I've spent a lot of time with prosecutors and police officers, um, and and sure, the work that they do to to bring these guys down is just phenomenal. That's fantastic. Mm. Looking forward. Mm. No, to we that. are having so much fun with this, and also you can listen to. The, all the interviews, if you want to. Yeah, the full podcast. If you go to yes. the Marie Claire uh, website, uh, there's a link through to my podcast where you can listen to the full interviews with, with Candace because Mama. I think and, that's and very Tandor. interesting. I mean, it was, it's so moving. I'm sitting here weeping slightly. But I just want to finish with Oscar Wilde because, you know, I love that man. And he said, always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. So true. Yeah, this is true. Uh, kill them with kindness, kind of, kind of that kind of thing. Uh, Mandy Wiener, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Aspasia. Thank, thank oh, you, Mabali. Yes. Let's just thank ourselves one more time. Thank oh. you. Uh, okay. <laughs> the normal. It's so lovely. We should thank each other. Uh, thank you both. Thankful. Thank you both. You can thank me for being your best white. <laughs> you are officially my best white. Oh God, now that gonna, is like terrible. You know no, what? I'm your better white. In, in Can't a, I just be your better white? In a role reversal, you're going to have black people walking around for a chain saying, I have white friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be back next week with another edition of Between Two Friends. Turn my microphone off. Well, oh, before I was like done. Before I was done talking. Clipcentral.com. Clipcentral.com. Clipcentral.com.